In our Bibles this evening, it's true, isn't it, that we come to one of the most elevated, one of the most magnificent passages in all of God's words, uh, isn't it? This is, a, what did I say this morning, one of the most famous, one of the most beloved portions of, of Scripture and all of the New Testament. One writer said that what we've got in our hands here in Philippians 2 is uh, the Apostle Paul's finest hour. And I'm in no rush, I don't suppose, to disagree. This is exalted, it is magnificent stuff. But at the same time, you and I have to be a little bit careful. You see, there are uh, such treasures, such riches in front of us. I think it would be really quite easy for you and I to, to lose sight of the question, Why? Do you see what I mean? Do you see what I'm getting at? We, we, <laughs> we could spend all of our time wonder at this elevated, the elevated terminology, the high Christology in front of us. And we could fail as a church this evening to consider, well, hang on. Why is he writing this? What is Paul's purpose here in writing this elevated material to the church in Philippi? And this evening, I want us to keep that purpose front and center. So can we, can we remember what we saw last week? Pretty sure we, we can, if you were here, <laughs> in a sense. That earlier portion of Philippians was very, very challenging, wasn't it? Paul had called for this new humility in the church in Philippi. Do you remember the church had to divest itself of, what was it, selfish ambition, vain conceit, had to put on this new unity that flowed out of a humble heart. Well, here's the thing about this. Paul is a student of human nature. Paul knows really well how stubborn we can be as Christians. So do you see what he does now? Having set out this mandate for humility, in this portion of Scripture, he follows it up by giving us a model to follow. Isn't that what he's doing? Like he's given us this preset, humility, and then he follows it up with this paradigm. And I don't want us to lose sight of it. Will you keep that for the next few moments? Will you keep that in view? Do not think that Philippians chapter 2 is a lovely diamond for us just to behold. Philippians 2, neither is it just a song to sing. Philippians 2, in Christ Jesus, Paul is giving us an example. And it's an example to follow. So if we have Philippians chapter 2 open, first I want us to think about and notice Christ's divine selflessness. Christ's divine selflessness. It's the first thing. Now, you, you, I'm sure, know this, but what we're dealing with as we move forward in Philippians 2 is a song. Can I say that? Certainly a, a 
poem, perhaps even a pre-existing poem that the Apostle Paul is taking and adopting. So because of that, there's a little temptation for me, because t- it's a song, it's a poem. The, the temptation is not a sing, don't worry. But the, the temptation is, because it's a song or a poem, to go into the structure and how it's put together and the arrangement of the song. But we'll forego that tonight, will we? And we'll just dive straight into the actual text that we've got in front of us. So can I ask you to look at the beginning of verse 8, to the first, sorry, the first part of verse 6, rather, Let's look at this. First part of verse 6. You find it? You got it there? So what does he say? Christ, who, let's just deal with the first bit, though he was in the, what do you have in front of you? In the form of God. We got it? So Christ, though he was in the form of God. Now, in a way, that maybe doesn't sound all that great to us, to our ear in English, though he was in the form of God. The form of something? What does that sound like to us in English? The form of something. It sounds almost like it's something that bears a vague resemblance to something else, but isn't quite the same. It's the form of it. Now, hear this. That's not right. The term here in the Greek is the term morphe. Everyone got it? Morphe. So it's a term that, yes, speaks of the outward shape of something. The form, the outward shape, but it's also a term, now listen carefully, also a term that speaks of the inner and the essential characteristics of that thing. Do you hear, do you see what Paul is saying? He is saying that Christ Jesus possessed all (laughs) that is of God, that Christ Jesus possessed outwardly, inwardly, all that was of God, that Christ Jesus possessed all of the distinctives. And all of the attributes, and all of the characteristics of God. In fact, if you just think about it and you wrestle with that word, that idea of form there, I'm sure you can see that possibly there is no clearer statement that could be made about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what you've got in front of you in your hands just now is right up there, isn't it? With Colossians chapter 1, isn't it? He is who? He's the image of the invisible God is right up there with Hebrews chapter 1. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. What Paul is doing here in Philippians is revealing what uh, one, I think it was an archbishop, one theologian said, and he said that God is Christ-like, and in him there is no unchrist-likeness at all. Who is Christ? Paul says, Christ is, he is divine. He is God. Now, it's glorious, isn't it? This Philippians 2 and this great high Christology. In a sense, I want to say to you that, though it is glorious, is not Paul's main point in the clause, in the phrase. So can I ask you just to look back down with me at verse 6 and see how he carries on. So you got it again, verse 6. Christ, who though he was in the form of God, what's the next bit? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So I wonder if the young people will look at me just now. Do I look a bit older than I did last Sunday night? Do I? Maybe a little bit, a bit grayer, but a few more wrinkles. My daughter's shaking her head, but let's be honest. If I've aged, that's because of this phrase. Okay, so... What's your first impulse? 
Let's read it again. Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What do you think that means? Does that mean that Christ did not possess deity, but it might have been something that he tried to grasp hold of? Is that not, Obviously, it's not that, right? It can't be that. Does it mean that Christ might have grasped onto deity in case he's scared that it's going to fall away? Of course, it doesn't mean that. You know what it means. What Paul is doing is confronting the people in Philippi and the people at St. Peter's with the utterly staggering humility, humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen very carefully. Though it was well within his capability that Jesus Christ did not use his status as God for personal advance. Did you hear it? He did not use his status, his divine status for self-promotion, to advance himself. That actually, you could understand this, you could maybe even render this, that Christ did not count equality with God something to be exploited. Do you see it? Something to use for personal gain. Now, what we could do at this point, I think, if we had longer, if we had longer, what we could do maybe is dive into the contrast that Paul is maybe making here between Jesus and Adam in the garden. Do we see that? Though Adam, what did he do? He did consider, yeah, equality with God, something to pursue, and our Lord didn't. We could delve into the, the contrast in a way here, but instead, I want you, remember what I said at the start, I want you to have the purpose of this squarely in view. So can I ask you to look at verse 5? Look at verse 5. What does Paul say? Hear the charge, hear the command to us at St. Peter's. What does he say? He says, and this, have that Mind among yourselves. Isn't it staggering? And isn't the message very clear? Friends, as we saw last week, you and I can seek self-promotion very, very easily in the life of the church, can't we? You and I, whether we recognize it or not, we can seek to advance our name, our voice, right? Our power in the life of the church. We can seek to advance our glory. And into that situation, what does Paul do in Philippians? He takes you to Jesus Christ. To entice you away, to entice us away from that, he shows us Jesus Christ. The one whose attitude was, I'm sure you would agree, the complete antithesis of the selfish ambition and vain conceit that we looked at last time out. Christ did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Okay, second of all, so we've seen Christ's divine selflessness. Second of all, let's consider, please, Christ's pre-incarnate self-giving. There is a mouthful for your minister, isn't it? There's a heading. Christ's pre-incarnate self-giving. How do, you, how do we feel as a church about theological uh, terminology? How do we feel at St. Peter's about theological terms? You know, if they're just banded about from the front without explanation, they can seem a bit naff, can't they? They can seem a bit flashy. But if a theological term is explained, 
then don't you agree that it can be of great use to us? Especially if we can file it away, maybe for later reading. Well, this evening I want us to use a theological term. And I accept that it's probably one you all know maybe very, very well, or most of us will. But maybe for the benefit of the younger people, I want to use the theological term. So yes, we're going to teach our kids theology, theological terms. So guys, you're going to have to listen up because I'm a wicked man and I'll probably test you later on when you're playing out in the garden outside. So what's the theological term? It's this. It's the term kenosis. So I'm going to spell it. Some of you have got your notebooks. You ready? You ready for it? So it's kenosis. K-E-N-O-S-I-S. Kenosis. Okay, so what is it? What is it? Well, up to now, if you've followed this, what we've seen is Paul speak of humility negatively. He's taught us what Christ has not done. He has not considered equality something to be grasped. But what about, friends, the positive side of Christ's humility? Can I ask you to look with me to verse 7? Let's look at verse 7. Now, I'll I accept that we are using different translations of the Bible. So so look down. What do you have in front of you? So a lot of you will have the NIV. What does it say? It says, Christ made himself nothing. Is that what you've got in front of you? Some of you will have the ESV. Do you? Now, the ESV says that Christ. Now, listen very carefully. Christ emptied himself. Now, listen, especially the younger people, that is kenosis. You all listening? So I'm going to come to you later on. I'm going to say, what is kenosis? You're going to say back to me, kenosis is the self-emptying of Christ. Everyone, the self-emptying of Christ. But what does that mean? I mean, clearly Christ has divested himself of something. He's emptied himself of something. Clearly he has deprived himself of it. But what does it mean? Well, the obvious thing, in fact, I would, I would dare to say the most important thing is this. Kenosis does not mean that Christ has divested himself in any way of deity. Is everybody on the same page? Is everybody hearing it? Christ emptied himself. It does not mean that Christ in any way divested himself of any divine attribute, any divine characteristic. In fact, I think it's John Calvin we need to listen to. (laughs) Not for the first time we need to listen to John Calvin. But listen to what he says. We're asking him, aren't we, tonight? What is this self-emptying? Of What does it constitute? What is this kenosis? And Calvin says this. Listen carefully. In the kenosis, Christ laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening his glory, but by concealing that for a time. Now, I am going to say it again. We're saying, what is kenosis? Is it divesting ourselves Christ of his deity? No, Calvin says, Christ laid aside his glory in the view of men. Get the next part. Not by lessening his glory but by concealing his glory for a time. Now, some of the people I'm speaking to here, you are 
doctors or you are teachers, you are uh, engineers, you are architects, and I know how your mind works right now. You want to know how. Okay, Christ empties himself of glory. What are the mechanics? How does that work? Well, praise God, because he shows you exactly how the kenosis works. Look at verse 7. Look at it. Christ emptied himself. How? Next part. By taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Isn't that amazing? Do you like maths? Isn't it almost like a mathematical sum? Do you see it? It is subtraction. Isn't it? Subtraction by addition. Christ empties himself of glory. How? By taking to himself humanity. Not by becoming just like us or similar to us but by actually affixing to his divine person fully human nature, yet without sin. Isn't it marvelous? The kenosis. Now, there's a lot there. I'm not the only one with a a headache after that, I'm sure. A lot there. But let me pause, and then let me contradict myself. (laughs) It is... A minister's prerogative sometimes, isn't it? Okay, see, I said at the start, what we mustn't do is lose sight of Paul's purpose. What is that? Paul's laying before us an example of humility to follow. And we mustn't, listen, we mustn't lose sight of that. But there is more that we should do this evening at St. Peter's, isn't there? As you and I hover over this terminology, this idea of kenosis and Christ emptying self, you know that we should pause together in awe, in wonder, in worship. I said in a kid's talk a couple of weeks ago that people around the world, they want to know what God is really like. And think about what Paul is showing us the kenosis, that right at the heart of the God that we worship is such humility that our God is a God who pours himself out for others. That is what our God is like, a God of such humility and such meekness that he leaves the heavenly throne room And he does become a slave, the omniscient God, you know, the omnipotent God, the eternal God, willing to take to himself hunger and thirst and pain and suffering and fatigue. So well, we have to notice this paradigm before us, but we have to do more tonight. We should fall to our knees in wonder, praise, and worship. So we see Christ's divine selflessness. We see Christ's pre-incarnate self-giving. But the third thing this evening is Christ's incarnate humility. A few years ago, uh, my best friend in all the world at the time, he uh, announced that he was emigrating. Um, It wasn't because of me. Um, it wasn't. It was that sort of well-known tale. He, meet, he meets an Australian lassie here, falls in love, and before he knows it, you know, he's 
He has the up sticks. I've made it sound like he did it against his will. He didn't do it against his will. He up sticks and went down under. Now, before he did that, uh, he and I talked about just what an amazing opportunity emigrating really is, you know? He maybe hadn't had a particularly easy couple of years, but he was emigrating. <laughs> he was going to Australia. So look at it. Like, uh, this is a new start for him. He could be anything. Nobody knew him in Australia. This was tremendous. It was a, a clean slate, an entirely new opportunity. Well, in a sense, that is what we've got in Philippians chapter 2. As we move on, you and I, it's like, in a sense, we are at the theatre or the opera or a play, because what we see as we move on almost is a set change, isn't it? Do you notice that? So we have been shown by Paul Christ in prehistory, haven't we? We've been shown pre-incarnate Christ. But as we move on, the curtain goes down. There's a set change. The curtain comes back up. And Paul now shows us God enfleshed. Shows us Christ incarnate. So do you see the question we ask? It's a bit like my friend emigrating. The question is, what's it going to be like now? Okay, Christ pre-incarnate in prehistory. Yes, he was humble. Yes, he was meek. But what about now as the God-man? Are things going to be different? Will Christ pursue self-promotion now? Have a look at verse 8. Have a look at verse 8. And being found in human form. Does he self-promote, self-advance? No, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Leave it there, is it not? Come on, you might be tired tonight, but is it not staggering? We have the eternal almighty God in flesh. Does he seek personal advantage? No, he lays down his life and, and he dies. We might have been bowled over by Christ's humility a moment ago, is this not even an intensification of his self-giving love? Now, let me just very, very briefly make two incredibly brief observations. Okay, so look back. The first is that this was voluntary. This was voluntary. So look back at at verse 8. Now, there's a critical word here. It's the same word as in verse 7. So the kids can fill in the blank. In verse 7, Christ emptied whom? Who did Christ empty? He emptied himself. Look at verse 8. Look at this. True, the incarnate Christ, he humbled. Who did he humble? Christ humbled himself. Christian friend, we must resist at all costs the temptation to look at Calvary and to think that there hung on that cross an unwilling saviour. We must resist the temptation to think that way. That as in, as Isaiah 53 shows you a suffering servant, yes, one that was silent before its accusers, what do we see at Calvary? 
we see the fulfillment of that. We actually see it, Calvary, for the very first time in all of human history. We see there a consenting sacrifice. Who did Christ humble? He humbled himself. That's the first observation. The second very brief observation is that this act was an act of obedience. Obedience. I think here, do you know what? I think we have to accept the limitations of the English language uh, at this, uh, this point. So again, I want to speak to the young people. So guys, you listen up. You've got to tell me who does, you don't have to shout it out loud, but who does this sound as though Christ is obeying? Christ uh, humbled himself to death. Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. You with me, young people, that it almost sounds as though Christ is obeying death, as though death were the master, as though death were in charge. As I look around at you tonight, you know, Christian friends, it was not like that. You know that that cross at Calvary at Golgotha, that that was an act of voluntary submission and obedience to the one that son loved so dear, an act of obedience to God the Father. And is there not in that for you tonight an implied, implicit challenge? I mean, you just need to put the pieces of the jigsaw together. One, Christ was equal with the Father. What did we see? He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, he's equal. The next thing, that what he obeys, is he? he obeys God the Father. And what's the last piece of the jigsaw? Paul says, have this mind amongst yourselves as Christians. Do you see the challenge? Friends, there is no place whatsoever for pride in the life of our church. No place for jostling together for recognition, no place for ego, no, the example that we are set is clear, and it is an example of far-reaching, radical self-giving. And then we'll close. So we've seen Christ's divine selflessness, Christ's pre-incarnate self-giving, Christ's incarnate humility. Last thing, as we end with us, Christ's ultimate condescension. Christ's ultimate condescension. I noticed a couple of weeks ago, that there was a game being played on social media. It was a game. This is not how I spend my time, just in case you're wondering. Uh, but there was a, a game being played on Twitter. Um, the rules of the game could not be uh, any easier. You had to ruin a song uh, by adding one word to the title of the song. So you get the idea? You surely get the idea, right? You've got a title of a song. And you add in one word that's going to completely change the dynamic of the song. I'll give you a couple of examples, will I? What about that Whitney Houston song? Not that I'm a fan of Whitney Houston, let me say that. But that Whitney Houston song, I Will Always Love You. Somebody came up with, I will almost always love you. That entirely changes the nature of that song, doesn't it? Another one was the Rick Astley song, I'm Never Gonna Give You Up. And somebody came up with, which I thought was ingenious, I'm never going to give you seven up, which I thought, I thought that was a work of genius. Much more seriously, in a sense, that is what the Apostle Paul does now. 
that the Apostle Paul ruins, if you allow that, this song with the addition of a word. Now, do you see what we've said? We've said that this is a song, this is a poem. And so you know how these things work. Poetic language. This song has rhythm. It's beautifully arranged. We didn't go into it earlier on, but it's beautifully arranged. It's got this lovely, perfect cadence all the way through. But just as, the, as we end here, what Paul seems to do is take this pre-existing poem, perhaps, and what he does is he adds a little phrase of his own, it would seem, and it's a phrase that completely obliterates the cadence of this poem of, or the song. You see, he disrupts the rhythm, the cadence of the song. Now, why does he do that? It's obvious, isn't it? Paul adds this word, this phrase, in order to grab the reader's attention, to grab us by the scruff of the neck, to point us to the sore thumb that's sticking out here. So can I show you it? Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. So what does he say? Christ becoming obedient to the point of death. You ready for the sore thumb sticking out? Becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Now, if we're going to understand this, I think we have to appreciate the feelings of our society. So what we have done is we have taken the idea of crucifixion and we have treated it like our hands in a pandemic and we have tried to completely sanitize the idea of crucifixion. What is the cross? It is a piece of jewelry, isn't it? Or it is a ornament in a church, or a picture, a piece of stained glass. That's crucifixion. But I think we're all very, very much aware that it was not like that in reality, nor was it like that in the ancient world. You think about this morning, Christian friend, the king of AI and what it pointed us to. You know that in the Jewish mind, crucifixion, the cross, a death of cursing and a death of shame, wasn't it? But do you know what? It was perhaps even more abhorrent to the Roman mind. I'm sure we all know that detail that, that in the ancient world of the time, in the first century world, it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified. We know that detail, do we? But linger on that a moment. I mean, if you committed a capital crime, it was more honorable to be beheaded than to be crucified. I'll read you one line. You know this line, I'm sure. Cicero, what he says about crucifixion, he says this, may the very word cross. May it be far from not only the body, but even from the thought, in the eye, even the ears of Roman citizens. Do you see it? In the ancient world, there really simply was no greater humiliation that a person could suffer. There was no greater shame than could be endured. And now, you consider this evening the extent to which our eternal almighty God has 
condescended. He humbled himself by becoming what obedient to death, and then Paul throws it in, and even death on a cross. Do you see it? The Christ has lowered himself from, what is it, from the highest point possible in the heavenly places to the lowest depths imaginable. He left heaven and he left it to be humbled and humiliated. That he went from the acclaim of all of the angelic realms, and he sunk to the ridicule of Roman guards. Do you see it? He went from constant praise to being pierced in his sight. He went from worship, antiphonal and constant, and he went from that to a shame and a humiliation that is unspeakable and unimaginable. And yes, of course, you and I have to keep in view Paul's goal here. What is he doing? He's laying a path ahead of you to follow. What do we have to do? If we're going to live a life that pleases God, we have to pick up our cross, pick up our crucifixion, and follow Jesus. Yes, we must maintain that as focus. But should we not close by remembering our Lord's goal in all of this? Because don't you cry out, why? Why the mystery of this? Would Christ humble himself in such a way? Why, God, would you take on and dress yourself in such abhorrent poverty And then we remember, yes, we remember, that though he was rich, why did he do it? Though he was rich, for my sake, for your sake, for our sake, he became poor. He did this for you. God dressed himself in humiliation for you. What are the words of that? brilliant him. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Friends, may it be in God's help that we seek this week to follow after Christ in his humility, but let us do way more than that. Let us also simply fall to our knees in praise and adoration. In Philippians 2, behold, your God, who is he? What is he like? Your God is one of such humility. He has poured himself out and he has done this for you. Friends, let's bow and pray. gracious and eternal God, we are, we are struck dumb, we are speechless in your presence because of your greatness, but also because of what you have done for us to pluck us from darkness and to take us to yourself, to light, to salvation, to your family. All we can do is praise you, O God, We thank you for this great condescension. We praise you for your humility. Help us.
O God, to follow this example that is laid down. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to conclude in song, songs of praise to our God. We're going to sing in Psalm 110, Psalm 110, and we're going to sing from the beginning through to verse 5, and the tune is Gerloch's side, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I make your foes a stool on which your feet may stand. So friends, if we're able, let us rise to our feet and let us sing praise to God.